0: with uh, an emphasis in the sermon on verse 4, as we consider verses 1 through 3 last time. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Hear the word of God. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? And let us pray together. Our father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We thank you for every word uh, that is found in the Holy Bible. And we ask you that now through the preaching your word uh, or, or that you would, uh, as it were, bring a light unto your word to illuminate its true meaning and its true sense to the people. And not just in a manner of their understanding, but in a very powerful sense by which those words are brought powerfully to bear upon All of our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we saw in the prior sermon. Was that Paul beginning in chapter 2 verse 1. Turns his attention to the Jews. He was primarily speaking to the Gentiles. In verses 19 through uh, 32 of chapter 1. And beginning in chapter 2 verse 1. He turns his attention primarily to the Jews. I say primarily because what you read in chapter 1, verse 19, through chapter 2, verse 16, are general enough that they uh, could be spoken of as indictments generally against mankind. Although beginning in verse 17, he explicitly does mention the Jew. At any rate, it does seem clear that his interest is in the Gentiles first, then the Jew. The Gentile, like the Jew, or the Jew like the Gentile, I mean, was one who excused himself only for a different reason. You notice the refrain, you are without excuse. He says that about both. Verse 20 of chapter 1, verse 1 of chapter 2. The Gentile excused himself by his ignorance, thinking that he didn't possess the law, and there was really almost nothing he could know about God, so how could God hold him accountable to this? Paul says that, in fact, he was without excuse because there was so much that could be known about God simply from creation. However, the Jew had a a different excuse. In fact, the opposite. The Jew was one who excused himself not because of his ignorance, but because of his knowledge, because of what he possessed by way of privilege and covenant. And what he thought as a result of this, this was his excuse, that these were the things that made him exempt from the judgment of God, that the judgment of God could not and it would not ever touch the Jew. And so we saw how in verse three, The Jew thought he could escape the judgment of God. Do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Well, the truth is that he did. He felt his position was secure and untouchable. That God's judgment would be poured out in all of its fury upon the heathen nations. But that the Jew is someone who would escape That calamity unscathed. He was much like the man in the pew today, the man who thinks he is a Christian, only he isn't the man whom we call the nominal Christian, who imagines that because he's not like the man on the street, the profligate sinner, of course, God's judgment will never touch him. He bases his whole position on the fact That he is not like other notorious sinners. And this is what he thinks makes him safe. Not that he's saved personally. Just the fact that he's better than others. And yet to this position. Paul says folly. This is folly for two reasons. One is that the judgment which, which such a man. Whether the Jew of his day or the nominal Christian of our day. Is first false about himself. Whereas God's judgment was always true. Always fair, always just, God's judgment is according to truth against those who practice evil, verse 2. And secondly, that the man who thought this, you who judges, practices the same sins that he condemns in others. And thus he is as liable to judgment as, let us say, the man on the street whom he imagines he's superior to. But it's important here, this is something I, I, had, uh, I had thought about bringing in last time. But I think I had enough to say in that sermon. But with with regard to verse two, before we get to verse four, I want to ask this question. And that is when Paul says to the Jew or to the man who judges, God's judgment is according to truth uh, against your false judgment about yourself. It is against all who practice such things, which again includes the man who judges In other words, what Paul is saying in verse 2 about God's judgment is that he has no favorites. He doesn't exempt anyone, but all who sin, which means everyone, will be judged equally and fully. Which is to say he never lets anyone off. He never says no judgment for you. That is an inflexible uh, principle of God's eternal justice. If that is true, you might already be thinking this. What about the gospel? What about the Christian church? Is it not true to say that there is no judgment and there is no condemnation? Does the gospel in some form negate the principle that we are considering and place us in the position of the Jews? Which is a fascinating question, but it turns out that it is answered quite easily. The gospel, it is true, does fully exempt the Christian from the judgment of God. That is the triumphant assertion Of the book of Romans, especially in chapter eight, verse one and chapter five, verse one, there is no condemnation for the Christian, but not because as the Jew thought that God simply decides that he isn't going to judge his favorites, that he's going to exempt them and judgment will have nothing to do with them. But because his judgment has already been poured out on his own dear son. And that is the only the reason the only reason that the Christian today has any hope that he will escape the judgment of God. It is not simply because he's one of God's favorites, as the Jew imagined, but because of the refuge that he finds at the cross, which was the place of God's judgment. And so we know that the gospel is not a negation of justice. In fact, as we'll see uh, very soon in chapter three, it involves the full exercise of God's justice. God says that the wages of sin is death. And those are the wages which are which were exacted upon his own son at the cross. And thus we know that what God said was true and he held to his word and he didn't lessen the standard of justice one whit for me or for you or for anyone. He doesn't clear the guilty. He doesn't let them off. He rather punishes their sin in the person and the priesthood of Jesus Christ, who is our surety. And when God justifies the elect in him, it is not on the basis of a favoritism or a neglect of his justice. It is because it is solely because they are accounted as righteous only for the righteousness of Christ Christ imputed to them and received by faith alone. And thus we see Paul saying about the gospel, chapter three verse 31, do we then make void the law through faith, through faith? You can understand that was an accusation which the Jews were hurling at Paul. Certainly not, he says. On the contrary, we establish the law by the very gospel we preach. We don't set it aside. But we exalt it in the most exalted way. Yes, indeed, the judgment of God, Paul says, and he will say in so many ways throughout this great epistle on justification, the judgment of God is according to truth always. And the justification of sinners by virtue of their union with Christ does not violate this principle. It is precisely because this is true. God's judgment is according to truth that Christ had to die in order to save us and to justify us. It was in order for God to be true to his word and to his justice. But you see, again, the Jews simply felt that the justice of God would never touch him, that he was somehow uh, exempt or that he possessed immunity. And that is something very different than I was just describing with regard to the Christian and his relationship to the justice of God as he finds himself united to Christ by faith and therefore covered And finding refuge at the cross. But that wasn't the position of the Jew at all. It wasn't a sin that was fully pardoned. That gave him confidence to face the judgment of God. It was the foolish notion that for him there was no judgment. Because he was a Jew. And so we see him as one who thought he was exempt. He imagined that judgment belonged to others. But not to himself. He felt in essence that he could evade the whole notion of judgment and is being accountable to God for his sins by his clever arguments. And what you notice that Paul is doing here is that he is addressing those arguments one by one by one. And, uh, and in a moment, we will get to the next argument or excuse that Paul evaporates or demolishes. But uh, if you just think of it that way, That what Paul is presenting to the Jew, he's presenting to the Gentile, and I am presenting to you just as I am to myself. Uh, The fact that all of us are liable and all of us will face the Lord on the last day, the day of judgment. There isn't a single person who will be exempted from that experience. In fact, in verses five and six, that is the very thing that Paul will assert but the truth is that the Gentile and the Jew and we are all alike in some sense, because all of us, uh, certainly in our sin, seem to think that we are exempt for one reason or another. We are presented with the fact of God's judgment. I'm speaking of the man in sin in particular, not the Christian. The Christian has an answer, and it's a very good one. But man in sin always has an answer. Or so he thinks. You tell him that God's judgment is according to truth and it's against those who practice such things, which means it's against everyone. It's against you. And yet he always seems to have an answer. Let me illustrate how this happens, how it is one way or another. We seem to think that it applies to others, but not to ourselves in a very generic way. We hear a convicting sermon and we think. I'm glad the preacher preached like that today. These poor sinners around me needed a good beating. Now, that's what I'm saying is the common tendency, the way in which we tend to excuse ourselves and yet hold others to uh, the very standard of justice that we think somehow we are exempt from. And so we hear the idea of God's wrath and the conviction of sin, and we always imagine it applies. It applies to someone else. We are all the time, Paul says, excusing ourselves rather than accepting the truth about ourselves and about God's judgment. Somehow or other, we imagine we are exempt. We are even ready to give our reason or our rationale. And that is precisely what the Jews were doing. Of course, we're prepared to say, like the Jews, the really bad people, even the careless Christian, but certainly the man outside the church, the Gentile, the heathen. He has no excuse whatsoever. Chapter one. But somehow we imagine that our excuse will hold up. And Paul's whole point is to show us that it will not. It doesn't matter who you are because you are a sinner. You will have to face the judgment of God. And the question which the God, only the gospel answers, but the question which every man must be prepared to answer is, what will you say on that day? And so, in verse four, Paul moves on to the next great excuse—the reason that the Jew and the man in sin, even today, was uh, was bringing uh, in response to Paul's accusation that man is in sin and he is thus liable to the wrath of God, and that even now the wrath of God is being revealed against him. Well, as I say, this is something the Jew was saying, but it's something I think we can recognize readily as being say, said today, and it has to do, verse four, with the goodness of God. Men are appealing to the goodness of God as an excuse, as a reason that one way or another, God's judgment will never touch them. This is what the argument looks like. They appeal to the undeniable fact of God's goodness, what we uh, what we sang about in the first hymn. They find it in nature. They find it everywhere. Look all around and you cannot but be overwhelmed by the amazing goodness of God. But they find it especially In the fact of his long suffering and his forbearance, which means his patience with man. The fact that God is, as it were, restraining himself in his vengeance and his justice. Now, surely the argument goes, if God was really going to judge man for his sin, he would have done so already. He wouldn't have waited so long. But look at the world today. Look how much time has passed since the creation of the world. And yet the world goes on. Sin does not go away, yet the world goes on. Now, how do you account for that but for the goodness of God? And in fact, thus far, I am prepared to agree with the argument. Except for uh, that it would never come. But the fact that it hasn't come thus far is on account of the goodness of God. Surely that is right. But here's where they think they've clinched the argument. They say because of this, that God is not going to punish sin after all. That's their conclusion. He's simply too good and too kind if he was going to do so, he would have done so already. But that he hasn't is convincing proof that he is, after all, too good and too kind to do so. That he has no intention in the end of punishing the sinner. That there is, in fact, no wrath in God. Or, or if there is, he's simply too good ever to really exercise it in a punitive manner. Now, this is what the Jews were saying in Paul's day, especially with reference to themselves. They were, uh, let us realize, in a special manner, recipients, uh, to use the precise language of Paul here, we can acknowledge this biblically, that they were recipients of God's, the riches of God's goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering. If the Jew were to apply that to himself, he would be correct. And at the same time, the Jew could not deny that they had, in some sense, rejected the Lord, over and over they had done so, and yet God had not cut them off. He continued to exercise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering toward them. He suffered them long. And the Old Testament, surely, uh, we are already seeing, even in the second book of the Old Testament, uh, it is a story of these riches, which God lavished upon the Jew, and which uh, we might also say uh, was also true at the time that this book was written. Uh, The book of Romans or this letter. And so the Jew concluded falsely, but this was their conclusion, that God would tolerate their sin forever and he would never pour out his wrath. That his goodness, the riches of his goodness and long suffering and forbearance precluded them from ever being under God's wrath. Now, this is something which is also common in the church today. This view. The Christian today who reasons in the same way. One of the things that you cannot help but notice, and uh, in some sense, I would think these sermons would make this more obvious, is that there's very little talk of the wrath of God today in the church. And there's an important reason for that. And that is because the modern Christian, the modern evangelical Christian, has very little place for the wrath of God and his conception of God. He is all the time appealing to the goodness and the love of God. Which is for him, it seems, the controlling thought and if you listen to him closely, your average evangelical Christian, you will begin to wonder if he really believes that anyone will be lost in the end, that perhaps he really does believe deep down that all will be saved. And of course, what we realize is we, we might realize uh, even about ourselves at times that this appeal to the goodness of God as somehow involving a negation of his wrath and an exemption from the scrutiny of his justice is in reality just a poor excuse to live in sin, which we saw Peter saying in second Peter chapter three. Is he really ever going to come? Let us in uh, to the full. In essence, they were saying, you see, men entertain this notion that if God hasn't judged the world yet, even though he said he would, then perhaps he never will. And so they indulge in every kind of vice, thinking that day will never come and they will never have to answer for a single one of their sins. And what Paul has to say about this, in whatever form it appears, is that it is to despise the goodness of God. It is not to neglect it, but it is to take something good and to use it for evil. It's to despise it. Do you see how strongly he puts it? Verse four. Do you despise the riches of Of his goodness, forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. The man who thinks like this has not only misunderstood the goodness of God, you see, he has abused it entirely and utterly. He has taken advantage of it for his own gain so that he might sin with impunity, at least so he thinks what Paul says here is a terrible indictment against the man in sin. To take something good in God, even his own goodness, and to use it for evil. Yet this is how sinful man has become. That he will even use the goodness of God as an excuse to sin. Well, let us examine this position more closely and see where it goes wrong. It fails to take into account several important truths. And the first is the most obvious. It is the way the Jew and man in general fails to take into account this simple fact that God has revealed his wrath and his judgment repeatedly throughout history. How foolish is the notion that God will never exercise his wrath? He's been doing so all along. We know from the Bible, we know from the history of the world, admittedly, that that history is one long story of God's rich forbearance and long suffering. And goodness in fact we know theologically speaking that there would be no world but for his long suffering and his forbearance. But that's not the only story and the Jews should have known better how much judgment have we seen already a book and a half into the Old Testament. And yet we, we might lament how ignorant the Jews were of their own scriptures The Old Testament is full of repeated acts of judgment against the world. We find it at the garden against our first parents, Adam and Eve. We find it dramatically at the flood in chapter six. We find it against Sodom and Gomorrah, the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against those two towns. And then when Israel begins to form into a nation, we find repeated acts of judgment against them. Beginning in the wilderness before they even get into the land. And then once she gets there, there are repeated episodes of God's clear judgment against Israel, whether in the land or in her exile from the land. And so very clearly alongside the history of God's long suffering was also his judgment. This is an undeniable facet of biblical history. And the only explanation for why the Jews did not take into account this obvious fact is that sin had blinded them so much that they did not see it or at least that they failed to apply this obvious fact to themselves, which is what Peter says in second Peter chapter three. And let me let me read uh, this time those two verses again, verses five and six for this they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. That is a reference to the judgment of God at the flood. But they willfully forget it. Sin has blinded them. Add to this the fact, speaking historically, that Paul is saying that the wrath of God, Romans chapter 1 verse 18, is presently being revealed. In so many obvious and undeniable ways. And then. A third facet of this history is what he says in chapter 2. Verse 5. In accordance with your hardness. Uh, with your hardness and your impenitent heart. You are treasuring up for yourself wrath. And the day of wrath. And the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You see there is a future element as well. And what we will discover. And what we are able already to see. Is that there is no. Greater mistake than to think that God's present goodness precludes His future wrath. That because in His goodness He suffers sin now, He will never punish it. Yet that was the folly of the Jew and that is the folly of man in sin today. And so the first problem was simply that of ignorance, a willful ignorance with regard to the obvious reality of God's judgment in history and in scripture. But the second uh, misunderstanding has to do with God, uh, God and time. Simply that for God, time is no factor at all. God lives in an ageless eternity. You see, they're arguing with reference to time, his forbearance, his long sufferings. It, it is a temporal argument, but it, theologically speaking, it is a terrible argument with respect to God. Time is a created concept. It is his idea. It is something that is subservient to him, not he to it. We might be slaves of time, but not him. He stands above it and outside of it. And so for him, it is simply no factor at all. It's not something that weighs against him or limits him in any sense. It is something fully under his control as all of eternity stands before him as an eternal present. And yet, how often we treat God as one like ourselves and forget he is essentially different. The Jews imagined, verses 1 through 3, that his judgment was like theirs and that they were in agreement, but they weren't. So, too, they thought of his long-suffering as evidence that time had worn him down. They thought of his relationship to time like ours. Oh, but how quickly they forget, and we with them, that God... Is not like us at all. And that is Peter says in chapter three, verse eight of the passage we read that one day is as a thousand years and vice versa. Which is just to stress the very truth that I am saying here. Time for God simply does not factor in at all. It does nothing to suggest anything but that God does indeed suffer long our sin. You see, from our vantage point, it explains a lot. But it does nothing to tell us one way or the other, whether God, in fact, is going to judge us. It certainly does not suggest that he will not. As to the day of wrath and the fact of his judgment, it simply does not factor in because time is not something God is subject to. God, in other words, is not less likely to judge because a long time has passed. And so that is another sad instance of ignorance. It is an utter dis- uh, abuse of the whole idea of long-suffering and forbearance. But then third, men are ignorant of the nature of God's goodness. And this is where we have to be careful, too, as Reformed Christians, because I find at times that we get a little nervous talking about Romans chapter 2, verse 4, and the goodness of God, lest perhaps we begin to sound like Arminians. You might ask me after the sermon, Pastor, have you become an Arminian? Well, let me say I have not. I'm as committed to reform principles as ever. Uh, and yet, perhaps uh, you may not be used to uh, what I'm about to tell you from a reform pulpit. Perhaps we are ignorant of the goodness of God. We see how they felt, the Jews, that is. The Jews felt God's goodness meant that he would not and perhaps could not really Judge. He was simply too good to do so, at least with respect to themselves. And that is a common argument. You find it today as well. But in terms of a reform response, let us say, it will never do to try to win the argument against this idea by denying the goodness of God. So often we try to defeat this argument that God is so good that in the end he's going to save everyone. By pitting his wrath or his sovereignty against his goodness. In other words, we find someone contending for his goodness and then we contend for some for some other attribute in God. But what I'm saying is the better procedure is to contend for the goodness of God rightly understood. The scriptural sense of the idea. Do you remember what our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount says about the goodness of God with respect to the evil and the good alike? At the end of Matthew chapter 5, that Jesus says that He cares even for the wicked. He causes the sun to shine upon them, the rain to pour upon them, which means that the wicked are also, along with the good, recipients of the goodness of God. God is good even to the wicked. Notice I am not speaking of His love. This is where I differ from the Arminian. I am not speaking of His love. I am not saying that God loves the wicked. But I am speaking of his goodness. The wicked not being recipients of his love are recipients of his goodness. That is Jesus point in Matthew chapter five. He makes the sun to rise upon them and he sends rain when they need it. And so when we speak of God's goodness, we mean his essential benevolence. That he does good to others and that he really does wish to do good unto them. I've just been reading about this, in fact, in uh, the, the reading assignment on Jonathan Edwards. What does it mean to do good uh, for those of you who plan to attend the men's breakfast? Well, it isn't a begrudging uh, good unto others, but it is a cheerful and a free doing good unto others. A desire to do good unto them. That's what it means. And this is what we find in God because of his goodness, that he really does want to do good to others. Now this fact about God's goodness explains other difficult statements. Not just Romans chapter 2 verse 4. But also what is said in Second Peter chapter 3 verse 9. That God is long suffering not wishing that any should perish but all should repent. You see it's the same truth or what we find in the Old Testament prophets. That the Lord does not delight in the death of the wicked. Oh, that they might turn and come. Jesus our Lord saying that as well in Matthew chapter 23 uh, uh, unto Jerusalem. And all of these passages stand in the same class. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. In other words, he never once looked upon man's lost estate with delight or relish. That is what he means when he says he takes no pleasure or delight in it. He looks upon the lost sinner with pity and concern. He graciously invites the sinner to turn and be saved. And he laments that he will not. That is what we find in such passages and such statements. And here I would notice by way of contrast. That only the wicked delight in the downfall and the ruin of another because they 're not good that 's what makes them wicked they don 't seek the good of another, but they seek the ruin of another. That is what Satan has been uh, after all along. He has always wanted to ruin and to destroy man. that is his purpose and goal. and when he succeeds, when he finds a man fall into sin and fall into hell, it absolutely thrills him. it gives him delight. But God is not like that. He is essentially and supremely good. He does not delight in suffering. He does not delight in man's ruin. He does not seek it or desire it. It gives him no pleasure. We see this most clearly as our Lord assumed fleshly form in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. In Jesus, we do not find a man who loves to damn. We find one who almost regrets that man should be damned. We find one who is full of pity, mercy, and concern, and gracious invitations unto salvation. Come unto me, he says, to lost sinners, and I will give you rest. We sang that in the second hymn, Matthew chapter 11. Why will you not come? Why will you not be saved? Oh, that you would come that I might save you. Matthew Chapter 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as hens gather her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. The goodness of God. Yes, but here is where God is so unlike man. His goodness does not preclude his justice and his wrath. You see, I have said that he all but regrets that man is lost and must be damned. But still he damns him. And this is because God is also just. He is just and good at the same time. But don't misunderstand me. It isn't that God is pulled in two different directions. And he lands in the middle so that his life is lived in tension. The ideas, these two ideas, justice and goodness, are not at odds, at least not in God's life. God is not torn between these two things. Both of them express perfectly who he is. He is just. He is good. He is both without measure and unto perfection. And what we need to see is that the justice of God is an expression of his goodness God does not delight in the downfall of the sinner, but neither does he delight in sin. Both things are tragic to him because of who he is. And if God simply ignored these things, then he could he could hardly be called God and he could hardly be called good. His goodness is therefore seen in that he does punish sin. He is the good king full of mercy, but also not reckless in the exercise of judgment. But his goodness, let us also see, is seen in the way he proposes to pardon the sinner. God does not, you realize, immediately say, I'm going to damn you for your sin. He's long suffering. He's forbearing. He pushes back his wrath and his justice aways in history. He looks upon the guilty sinner with pity and he says, I will pardon you today. The day of salvation, if only you will turn and believe and be saved. Here are good and gracious terms which only a good God could devise terms which satisfy his goodness and his justice and express both perfectly and which terms which even man himself cannot but recognize as good and just Romans chapter two, verse four. Knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. So that leads me to the fourth and the final point of misunderstanding, namely the goal of God's goodness as expressed as long suffering and forbearance. Man misunderstands. He thinks God's goodness is meant to impress man with the whole notion of leniency, when in reality, Paul says it is meant to lead men to repentance. Which was a lesson that Israel failed to see. It's a lesson that men today failed to see. Which they are as Peter says again. Willfully refusing to see. As we consider God's essential goodness. We are impressed with how long he has suffered our sin. Forcing us to conclude. Surely such a God must be good who seeks my welfare and my salvation, even though I have long sinned against his grace and his mercy and his goodness. And the more I consider this, the more ashamed I become that I ever thought to sin so long and so freely against a God so good as this. From his goodness, I see that he has suffered long, but will not suffer forever And that this is nothing but an opportunity for me to make peace with the God I have offended. Not an opportunity for me to further transgress his law. Far from encouraging further sin, God is encouraging repentance. That's Paul's point. He is calling all men everywhere to repent and to turn from their sins. The gospel invitation extends to all men alike. That is the only reason, beloved, that God in his goodness, in his long suffering and his forbearance has not destroyed the world already. It isn't slackness, you see. It's his earnest desire arising from his essential goodness that I might repent and be saved. His goodness compels him. To long for my salvation and to want it. If I abuse this, abusing today, the day of salvation, this isn't something he wanted. But if in his goodness I do not find reason enough to accept the gracious offer, then punish me he must and punish me he will. Again, as verses five, six and beyond make clear in Romans chapter two. And so, again, God's goodness is not an excuse to sin. It's the greatest possible stimulus to repentance there is. And if I do not recognize this, if I do not see in his long suffering an opportunity to seize upon the day of salvation before the day of judgment comes, then I am one, Paul says, who despises the goodness of God. And for such a person... He will go on to say he is only treasuring up or storing up for himself wrath on the day of of God's vengeance. Let me close with this thought. Goodness and the gospel. We've seen that God is so good that he really does desire my salvation, my repentance. He gives me ample opportunity to do so. He holds back his judgment, if only so that I might repent today. And for my sin, he provides a remedy, one which we have seen as according to truth. It expresses his justice perfectly and truly. But let us also see at the same time that the cross is the ultimate display of this very truth, the ultimate display of the goodness of God. Wherever did God appear so good and full of benevolence to the sinner? Wherever did he express so fully and so well his desire to save him? And to pardon him that he should not perish but have everlasting life. John chapter 3 verse 16. Look upon a dying Savior, even the Son of God, hanging upon that cursed tree. And what do you see? Do you notice the goodness of God? And how good he must be to have gone this far. Here is a goodness and a love which not only speaks of a desire to save on the part of God, but which actually provides and accomplishes it. A salvation full and free offered to the guilty sinner if only he would believe today. But even then, I do not look upon such goodness and love and conclude, well then, I might really sin after all. No, I conclude here is a goodness and a love which compels me, too, to be good and to love God in return. Here God is saying, my goodness calls you to repentance. It leads you down this path. Thus we find Jesus preaching in the Gospels, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And thus Paul says, we do not sin that grace may abound. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. God's goodness is not our license to sin, beloved. It was always meant to lead us. And you notice that word in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It was always meant to lead us to repentance and to a life of godliness. And nothing so impresses me with this truth, the need for real practical godliness, than the goodness of God displayed at the cross. Amen. And let us come now to the table together.